Glory, man. It's a joy for me to be back here with you and uh, to open up God's Word. Um, I send my greetings from Saving Grace Bible Church, and a few weeks ago I asked the elders if they would free me up to come up here, and they they willingly, gladly sent me here, so I'm thrilled to be out here to minister to you, and would love to just encourage you from God's Word. We've been studying through, in our season of ministry, studying through Matthew's Gospel, and so I invite you to turn in Matthew to Matthew chapter 22, look at verses 34 through 40 this morning. As you turn there, listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 3. I think Solomon in Proverbs basically lays down the verses that interpret our passage this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Solomon says this. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you, but bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now the verse that helps kind of set our context this morning Solomon's exegesis of Jesus' words, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. The Old Testament commentary, this is Solomon's instruction to his son to exhort his sons to to bless them in life. And he reminds his sons here, that there must be a wholehearted devotion and dedication to God. He starts there in verse 1, Don't forget my teaching, but uh, you know, keep, let your heart keep my commandments. He's basically, listen to my instruction, listen to what I am giving you, because what they're going to do for you is expand your days, and they will give you favor with God and men. You are to guard them and protect them and to keep them uh, diligently. Um, it's interesting there when he lays this out. He says there, do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he makes your path straight. I'm pointing these things out because this is the Old Testament's teaching on our perspective on the word of God. Here's what Solomon laid out. Listen to these words as well from Isaiah the prophet. God's words are recorded and Isaiah says in Isaiah 66 verse 1 and 2 he says this heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I could find my rest for my hand made all of these things thus all of these things came into being declares the Lord and then he makes this comment But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In the Old Testament, the prophet here is recording God. God is looking at one who handles the word of God, values the word of God, and takes it in. Solomon exhorted his son to take in the word of God, to keep it and preserve it and practice it. 
All that sets up now our context here in Matthew chapter 22. It's easy for us to talk about a love for God. We can say, well, here's what I do for God. I, I do all these great things. I love God. Everyone talks about a love for God. In fact, every Christian song, to some degree, emphasizes one's love and affection for God. Those are the things that we travel into quickly. But what does a love of God look like? We do love. We are creatures that manifest love. We are, after all, created in the image of God, and we reflect God in in, uh, being created in his image. And one of the areas in which we reflect God is the demonstration of love. We show love in our families. We show love, of course, to one another in the body, and we are ultimately called to show love to God. But we also recognize that that love in this fallen world has been corrupted. We struggle daily with love for self. We struggle with this insidious evil that perverts the love of God and twists it in such a way as to disform it. People ultimately demonstrate their own self-love in such ways that they exalt themselves above God. They exalt themselves above God's word. They exalt themselves above God's design. And they demonstrate their insidious self-love in how they treat God and his people. They exalt themselves over God. They don't come under God's word. They don't, as Solomon says, hide the word in their heart or treasure it. They don't humble themselves before the word of God. In fact, they stand over the word of God, casting judgments on it. They stand over it, telling the word what it must mean, rather than coming under the word and being shaped by it. This is our unique temptation. We face this regularly. And this is evidence in, in many ways within the context of church today. Men begin to define and defend their evil as being part of uh, who they are and what is necessary for them to operate. They guard their evil and even form or take the scriptures to use the scriptures to justify their evil. Uh, again, a homosexual, for example, saying this relationship is fine or is good because it is love and it's showing genuine love. On and on the arguments go that people begin to twist the scriptures in order to demonstrate what they want to fulfill their own selfish desires. And in doing that, they demonstrate this insidious evil within that man loves himself more than he loves God. He loves his own ways. He loves to take God's truth and twist it so that he can get what he wants. This is the great evil that is within our own hearts. And this evil is manifested in many ways. It's exposed when the word of God is preached and the heart resists it. When the heart pushes it against it and says, I don't want those things, I don't want to hear that, the heart is being revealed by the word of God and the heart starts the war against that. So what does man do when the word comes in and pierces into his life and starts to call him out and say that that is wrong? What happens? Well, a series of things happens. Either one, we start to say, well, that's not what everyone else believes. And so we start to find all the people who agree with me. So if I get the, enough people who agree with me, then the truth doesn't matter here because all these people agree with me. Or people begin to jump into academic exercises and say, well, that's a possible range of meaning of that word, but it could mean these other things, and they start running on this whole lexical pursuit or something else to, to academically discredit the argument that's being made. 
Or some are just disinterested altogether. I don't have enough time to wrestle with that. I don't have enough time to think about that. Other things in life that are so, so much more important. And man either hides the truth of God's word in disinterest, in academic arguing, or in the popularity of other opinions. The word of God gets pushed out and pushed to the side. All of this demonstrates an open hostility that man has towards God. Man opposes God. We understand that in a secular world. We understand that from a community of uh, unbelievers who do not want anything to do with God. What's difficult is when that creeps into a religious environment, when that creeps into the church or into into a place where believers are residing. And that is the exact context that Jesus finds himself here in Matthew chapter 22. If you just remember just the setting up of Matthew chapter 22, starts in 21 and Christ enters into Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem, into the temple, and walks around in the temple, and he begins to clear the temple of the abuses that were taking place because the Pharisees had allowed for there to be money changers and the sale of animals there, and he clears the temple to clean out that, and then he begins teaching. Well, as he is doing that, there are a series of conflicts come out. Jesus now enters into the place where God is to be worshipped, and he begins to come to, to, again, honor God, and he faces opposition from religious people, from the teachers of the law. He faces opposition from those who knew better or should have known better. He comes and faces opposition against from those who had, again, spent their entire lives ministering the Word of God, ministering uh, in worship services. And when he enters into that context, you remember as he entered in, he entered in ultimately fulfilling uh, the prophecies that would come, that the Messiah would enter in. And he entered in with the praise of men who are crying out to Christ, Hosanna in the highest. Uh, They were recognizing him as the son of David. And it says back in uh, chapter 21 that uh, when he was uh, entering in, you look over there in verse 15, it says that, or verse 16 says, the, or 14, the blind man and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, notice they became indignant, angry at the praise that Christ was receiving, angry as he was receiving the honor that was rightly due him. And again, it, this wasn't the, the unbeliever at home angry. This was the religious teacher of the law. This was the one who was leading in the sacrifices, in the sacrificial system. This was one who was leading the praise and worship services of the temple. These were the ones who were angry when Christ entered in, was acknowledged. To which then, a series of conflicts came out. And Jesus starts these conflicts with his three parables. He gives the parable of the of the fig tree, the a parable of the two, or the parable of the two sons, the parable of the landowner, and the parables of the marriage feast. And in those parables, he exposes the unbelief in the religious leaders. These religious leaders are those, and he and, and notice these three parables really quick. 
the parable of the two sons, he talked about two different kinds of sons. There's the first son who was initially rebellious, but then became repentant and turned and honored God. Contrasted with the other son who was initially um, compliant, but then left and became rebellious. And he demonstrated in these two sons, the true son was the one who repented and did his father's will. And then he calls out the basically religious leaders in that time. You are you act like the compliant son, but you're actually rebellious. And then there's the parable of the landowner. In the parable of the landowner, he talked about a magnanimous landowner who provided for his people, uh, for some renters, a piece of property that they could rent, that they would be able to make an earning from, and then pay back from those earnings. And those landowners, instead of paying back, killed the servants of the landowner and then killed the landowner's son and kept all the proceeds for themselves, and they were severely judged. Then he went into the parable in chapter 22 of the marriage feast, where this king had a a feast for his son, and he threw a feast, but those who were supposed to come didn't attend. So he went out into the highways and byways and brought people in. In all of these three confrontations that Jesus gives, he confronts these religious leaders for their unbelief and particularly for their unbelief around the sun. Notice each of those parables, the sun is the central point. You have two sons, you have the landowners whose son was killed, and you have the parable of the marriage feast where the son was, his, his marriage was being thrown and they wouldn't come and honor the son. Jesus was just confronting them and exposing them. Well, the response to that is the religious leaders decide, okay, we've looked bad now in front of all the people. He, he, we're going to turn the tables on him, and we're going we're gonna to expose him. We're going to expose that this guy's a fraud. And so now you have, from the rest of chapter 22, a series of three uh, attacks that the religious leaders tried to expose some fault in Jesus. They first attacked, they came in and asked about the tribute to Caesar. They asked about taxes and whether or not it's right for them to pay taxes. And they basically said, if you had this pagan coin, is it right to pay taxes with this pagan coin? Their whole idea was that if Jesus would come along and say, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, they'd arrest him on the spot and Rome would take over and Rome would you know, arrest him and get him off, off the picture. Or if he did say, yes, you, we have to pay these taxes and use this pagan coin to do it, then uh, this guy is an idolater. This guy is a blasphemer because he's using pagan money to pay this debt. So they were going to trap him in an impossible task. And you remember what he said there in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21 and 22, you know, that you know, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He just exposes their, their first attack. The second attack came then with the Sadducees, where they brought their religious discussion to them, to Jesus, and they challenged Jesus uh, on the resurrection. And you remember the case, you know, and they told this elaborate story of a man, who, of a woman whose husband died, and she ended up marrying the six other brothers. She had been married to then seven brothers, and then finally she died. And then, there, you know, in heaven, whose wife will she be if she was married to all seven of the brothers? I mean, talk about an awkward family reunion in heaven at that point. 
And they thought, in their minds, this is it. This is the uh, unanswerable theological dilemma that there's no way Jesus is going to be able to answer this. And on top of that, you add the other dynamic that these were the Sadducees, and they only viewed the Pentateuch as the authoritative books of the Bible. They wouldn't take any other argument. They wouldn't take anything from David's writings or any of the other prophets. It could only come from Moses. And they were the astute scholars of Moses. And they had been over those books multiple times. There was no way from Moses that Jesus was going to be able to say anything that was going to answer this question. And then, of course, Jesus not only quotes from Moses, but he quotes one of the most uh, familiar texts, the the God revealing himself in the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. He, he not only appeals to the quoting of God's revelation penned by Moses, but he also quotes an implied verb that isn't even there in the original. He says on the basis of this verb, a present tense verb, I am, which is implied in the Hebrew but is supplied in the Greek, he says on that basis they were refuted immediately on the spot because he exposed their lack of conviction, not only in the teaching of the scriptures, but of the implications of the scriptures. So now two attempts came to expose Jesus Christ. We now come to the third attempt, and that's what I want us to pay attention to this morning. The third attempt, verses 34 through 40, here's what is recorded for us by Matthew. But... When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. As I said, this is now, as Matthew records this, the third attempt for the religious leaders to discredit Jesus in some way. First attempt to make him an insurrectionist who's going against Roman authority or an idolater. The second attempt is to demonstrate that he is not a scholar of the law and uh, not a scholar in regards to the understanding of the doctrine of resurrection, and therefore we're going to expose his lack of theological understanding. That failed. So now we come to the third attempt, which is then to expose his view of Moses or his view of moral law, how to apply the moral law. Matthew then presents this story in a negative context. Mark, on the other hand, presents this story in a much more favorable context. Mark presents this as actually this guy, this lawyer who's coming to Jesus, is coming seeking to understand, and it is almost close. He even says that you were not far from the kingdom of heaven when you know, Mark records Jesus' interactions there with this lawyer. He records a more friendly tone. Matthew records a more negative tone. Notice again, verse 34, how he, how he demonstrates the negative tone here is that these Pharisees and Sadducees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees they were gathered together, and out of that gathering came this lawyer. This lawyer 
was one, again, the term lawyer here would be not only one who would practice civil law, but this was a particular case of one who studied the Mosaic law and would be accustomed to applying it both on a, you know, a civil level, but also on a religious level. This person, again, would be one who regularly studied the truth and regularly interacted with it. And he came to Jesus, approaching him, Again, Mark represents in this, this friendly term, like this guy was coming in order to, to perceive this great teacher's understanding. And likely that is the case here, that he is approaching Christ in one sense favorably as an attempt to understand this great prophet and his insight into the word, but also possibly as this um, indifferent a source who can objectively look at and evaluate whether or not there's something credible in him or not. He's actually coming in such a way to be a disinterested observer seeking to understand whether or not Christ can actually handle Moses properly and teach something that is consistent with Moses. I think that is his intention as he comes here. He's coming with the hope of perceiving uh, you know, something in Christ. Now, the Pharisees, of course, they're hoping Jesus would be exposed as uh, doing evil. And this guy, of course, is in between. He doesn't know what he's going to get. So now he comes and he asks this significant question of him. It says in verse 35, of course, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. The word testing is the same word that can be test or trial. Test is uh, something to bring out what is good within you. Whenever God uh, works, he is bringing a trial to draw out, uh, where a test is something to expose evil, to uh, you know draw out evil in one. It's the exact same word that is translated either trial or testing. Here the translator takes it as testing in order to demonstrate the negative connotation. He is trying to draw out evil in him. And he comes and he asks that significant question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the most significant? And ultimately, to understand this particular question, of which is the most significant commandment in the law, you have to understand the Jewish perspective of Moses. The Jewish perspective of Moses is that he was the greatest leader of Israel. And if the Jews had it their way, they would want another Moses to come, another deliverer who would come in and take them outside of the oppression that they are under. Another religious leader who would come in, like Moses, who would speak with God and who would lead them. A man who would, would not cower in fear under the oppression that they're facing. A man who would be able to oppose great authorities and press on. A man, again, who was uh, in, in tune with God, who knew God's message and who can speak on behalf of God. They were looking for that. So Moses, for them, was the greatest and most significant leader, to which then they spent all of their time studying Moses, studying his law. They had great appreciation for Moses and his law. He was the the spiritual hero for them. And not only did they have a spiritual, you know, they see Moses as a spiritual hero, 
they saw Moses as that great instructor that would lead them. So in all of this, they're looking for then another Moses to come, a hero like Moses. I mean, think about the significance of Moses. He was the only guy to be able to stand in the presence of God, see God face to face, and not die. I mean, this is, again, a credible man in the history of Israel's life. I mean, Moses gave God, or, or God gave to Moses the law directly. God wrote the law with his own finger and gave that tablet to Moses. And Moses, again, then was also the representation of the greatest hero for Israel because he led them out of the captivity. And on top of that, then, anyone who led in Israel led in a place that they desired to be in Moses' seat. You see that later in Matthew chapter 23 and um, verse 2. Jesus rebuking the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. and He says, look, the scribes and the Pharisees have noticed seated themselves in the chair of Moses. He was the ultimate authority. He was the most important spiritual hero for Israel. So now you see the issue that when this lawyer comes and asks Jesus a question, he is asking him, basically, what is your view of Moses? Help us understand your perspective of Moses. We're going to compare you against Moses. And to some degree, you can understand this, that the more Israel was under the oppression of Roman authority, the more they had to suffer under leaders like Herod, the more they would long for a guy like Moses to get them out of that. So they had this great love. And because of this great love, they spent all their time wrestling with Moses, and they had come up with 613 commands of Moses. They'd gone through the the writings of Moses and come up with these 613 commands. They had 248 positive commands and 365 prohibitive commands. One command, I think it was like 248 positive, it was for one command for every bone of their body. I don't know how they factored all of that. But then there was 365 commands, negative commands, one command for every day of the year. And they would spend their time with these commands, and with all of these commands, 613 of them, they had to weigh them all out because you couldn't possibly keep up with all 613 commands every single day. So you had to figure out a way to weigh them out, which ones were really important, like you absolutely can't disobey these, and which ones were bad to disobey but a little more tolerable. And so they would measure these laws and debate about this all the time, which ones were the important laws that had to be kept. In fact, even Jewish practice had come up with a system called gematria, which they would take the Hebrew letters and they would give every Hebrew letter a numeric value, and then each command had a word associated with it, and they would they would go through that word, give a numeric value to every letter for that word, and then they'd add up that value, and the higher the value, the more weighty that law was. So if you'd gone through you know, immorality or whatever, it would, they would tally it up and see that number was higher than stealing or something, and say, okay, because this, this word is bigger and the number is higher, this is a more weightier law. And that for them they became then the objective way, so it wasn't a subjective experience about which laws were were. Uh, weightier or not. 
So when they are coming into to Jesus and to ask Jesus this question, they're coming with all that historical background and all the ways that they used to wrestle with this question. And they thought that they were so sophisticated in their understanding that they were just going to overwhelm Jesus and expose him either as a fraud or a transgressor of Moses. That is what's taking place here. They wanted to weigh out which laws are important. They failed. Jesus is going to confront them a little later in their failure. Again, over in Matthew chapter 23, in verse 23, notice he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. Jesus ultimately con- confronts their system of evaluation of the weighty and the unweighty by saying, not only did you get it out of order, but you didn't honor it at all. You should have honored all of it equally. You've missed it entirely. That is the kind of historical background to the question, why was this weighty? Because they thought they were going to bring Jesus into this discussion that they've been involved in for many years, and they were very familiar with, and they wanted to get his understanding of it, and they wanted to expose him. And maybe here's the intention. The intention would be this. They would either demonstrate that Jesus was a theological fool in over his head and unable to keep up with the academics. That would be at best that he wasn't able really to explain Moses. Or they were going to demonstrate in this, at worst, that he thought he was better than Moses, that he was going to exalt himself above Moses, and that he was going to push out the law and give his own law that would be more important than Moses. Those were the two choices, the two errors that Christ could have committed when he came in to answer this question. And to some degree, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to happen. He can't explain Moses or he exalts himself above Moses. And think about it to some degree. You can understand this. Jesus had just entered into the temple. He had entered into the temple with the praise of all the people and even the young children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. He's receiving this praise and honor. And on top of that, when they came to him and asked him to silence it, he wouldn't silence it. So in their mind, this is an egomaniac who's exalting himself above others, who's filled with pride, and now we're going to demonstrate the kind of pride he has by asking him how he views Moses, and he's going to exalt himself above Moses. And we're going to prove it that this guy is proud, arrogant, self-willed, and doesn't come under the word of God. That's the intention. Notice then his reply to them. In verse 37, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a profoundly brilliant response on our Lord's part. Cutting ultimately to the heart of the unbelief found in these religious leaders. Confronts them. And he confronts them by quoting Moses. 
He confronts them by going back to the law, going back to Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, and just quotes Moses' words. He goes back, and, and this is the profound simplicity of his argument, he goes back and quotes Sunday school verses. The Shema was that which they taught their kids from the very beginning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He goes back and he quotes the most simple, most fundamental principle of Jewish education for those kids. A parent would teach their kids this, and as it says in that context, you shall teach them in the morning and when you rise up and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. You'd be regularly teaching these things. What is the greatest commandment? A wholehearted love for God. And he doesn't stop there. He then turns, the other is like it, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as and then in that context, it says, I am the Lord. The reason why you do this is because I am God, and you ought to operate in this particular way. Christ does not dishonor the Old Testament. Christ does not dishonor Moses. Christ, in fact, goes to Moses and exalts Moses by quoting Moses, and Moses' answer to their very question. Now think about this for a moment. What had just taken place? The religious leaders have spent all their time thinking they honored Moses by wrestling with all of Moses' teaching and trying to value, create a value system that would honor Moses. And they thought in doing all of that, they were giving Moses honor. Christ, on the other hand, simply turns and demonstrates honor to Moses by quoting Moses and letting his words stand. This teaching of Exalting God is a fundamental principle taught throughout the Old Testament. All kinds of Old Testament passages, you can listen to them. Uh, Leviticus 19.34 says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land, I am the Lord your God. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Proverbs chapter 24, 17. Or Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 22, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. There is no need to mistreat others. This whole idea of Leviticus 19.18 became then a common theme throughout the New Testament. You shall love the, your neighbor. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 demonstrates, or Matthew 19.19, Jesus regularly demonstrated this principle in his teaching and instruction. We are to love others just as we love ourselves. This is what the God's great commands are. And notice in our particular text, when he says there in verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or, or back in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's basically saying you shall love God with your entire being. The words heart, mind, and soul are often interchangeable in regards to what they're referring to. One referring to the thought life, one referring to the affections, one referring to one's will or desires. And they're, again, used interchangeably throughout, but this is, this is basically the meaning. You love God with your entire being. 
all of your thoughts, all of your passions, all your desires, all of your strength. You're giving it entirely over to God. Your entire inner man is, is a life dedicated to devotion to God. And then in vice versa, not only do we love God with our whole being, we turn around and love others like we love ourselves. That is what we are called to do. So in this particular case, Jesus then cuts through the quick of their entire religious system and goes to the scriptures to demonstrate this. Now there's some, some principles that we can draw out of this to begin to think about. And I want you guys to, to think about these things for a moment. These religious leaders had placed themselves in a position where they were regularly teaching God's word. They placed themselves in a position where they were the sole authorities. Uh, they were the ones who were um, were the ones who were leading the religious worship. And in fact, if you look over back in chapter twenty-one, when uh, they came to Jesus and confronted Jesus, they said in. Um, Yeah, in, in verse 23, all of this, all of these questions started back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. When he had entered into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to Jesus while he was teaching there. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The whole tests were, how is it that you can say what you're saying and who gave you that right to do it? In their minds, they were the ones who ordained teachers. They were the ones who gave the seal, says this guy could teach. This guy has the authority to go out and minister the word of God. And when Jesus, in this moment, is entering into their temple, cleansing and disrupting their services, the question is, what gave you this right? That was the question that started these, not only Christ's three parables of judgment, but also the three tests, was this question of authority, which, by the way, Christ answers that in his challenge of them, which comes from verse 41 through 46 of chapter 22. He tells them by what authority, because he is the son of David, but... That's for a different sermon. This particular emphasis is questioning is then why these men uh, exalted themselves above Christ and questioned Christ's authority. And what he does is turn the table on them and actually demonstrates the basis of his authority. And he demonstrates the basis of his authority. And we could just start in this passage and work our way backwards. He demonstrates the basis of his authority in the scriptures. He didn't turn to himself and say, well, look, I can give you great wisdom and insight from my teaching of the law. He turns back to the word of God itself and answers the question from the scriptures. When these men had been accustomed to answering the law through their own reasoning, i.e., how do we weigh out the law based on, you know, gematria, the value of the letters, or how do we weigh out the law in regards to its application, he just turned simply back to Moses and demonstrated what Moses said. 
It's the same thing that he had just done earlier in verses 29 through 33 when the religious leaders came to to him and asked him about the resurrection. And again, he went back to Moses and he quoted the law of God, quoted, quoted Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5, demonstrated that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac. He was God of the living, not the God of the dead. Man begins to demonstrate his own self-love and his own self-will by exalting himself above the scripture. God, on the other hand, in Christ here, demonstrates his own love for God by his commitment and love and devotion to God by honoring the word of God. Here, in this context, Jesus says this is what a genuine love of God looks like. And he does, and he demonstrates a genuine love of God in two ways. So to ask the begging question of all that's just a really long introduction to ask what's the most important point is this, how do we love God? Well, I'll give you two ways you love God. The first is exactly what he quoted. You love God with your whole being and you love others in the same with your whole being. You love them as you love yourself. That is in one sense, then, how you love God. You love his ways. You love his word. You love the truth. And you demonstrate a humble submission under the truth. You listen to the word. You take it in. You meditate on the truth. You interact with it. You demonstrate a, a commitment to the truth. You demonstrate a heart that's teachable when the word of God is brought. This is how you demonstrate a wholehearted love for God. You are committed to his ways in every way. That's the first. But the second answer, and more significantly, is demonstrated in Jesus' practice here. Not only in what his words, quoting the scripture, but then also in his practice. Again, remember that he could have given any number of answers that they would have been satisfied with because he could have appealed to their own traditions at the time and their own experiences. He could have even appealed in himself to his own interaction. And he does none of that. Instead, he just quotes the word of God. He demonstrates himself in his practice, his own devotion to Jesus, oh, his own devotion to God by going to the scriptures themselves and quoting them. This is, again, in one sense then, the greatest demonstration of selflessness. He gets out of the way of his own wisdom and his own understanding and lets God's wisdom and understanding explain the answer. Friends, I think in this moment then, that is what our greatest challenge is. Our greatest challenge that we face today is getting ourselves out of the way and letting God be on display. Letting God's wisdom rule and reign in circumstances and situations. Letting God's perspective shape our perspective. Letting God's answers shape our answers. We get in the way by exalting ourselves and placing ourselves in a position where we give our own wisdom and our own understanding rather than God's wisdom and God's understanding. 
This has become most evident today, uh, recently for me, as I was uh, seeing debates within the church. I, I, um, I've seen how man has corrupted uh, himself and corrupted the truth. I was reading a, an article, there was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there was an article out of Colorado of, uh, of a priest who uh, was caught doing you know, wicked things. And in the news article, the uh, priest is quoted as saying to his victim, God wants this as he is sinning against this child. There is a perversion within the heart of man to take the things of God and twist it in such a way to even say this is God's desire that he would want this. It's the evil in man's heart. There, is a, there was another event that happened a, a couple weeks back. My wife uh, and some gals traveled from uh, Venice, uh, gone over to California to the uh, Truth Matters Conference. In the Truth Matters Conference, there was a Q&A session. And in that Q&A session, uh, Todd Friel asked the panel there a question about, uh, and he set it up like this. He said, I'll give you one word, uh, a word association game we'll play. I'll give you a word, and you give me the first word or phrase that comes into your mind. And Todd Friel at that moment says, he gives out the name uh, uh, Beth Moore, to which MacArthur replies, go home. And then, you know, the crowd nervously laughs or laughs a response. Uh, and um, that little clip is taken and broadcasted around saying, look at this, this misogynist old theologian um, who uh, discredits women, has, doesn't value them, is now mocking women and telling them, you know, to go home and uh, completely missing it. It creates this firestorm that I'm sure many of you have seen. And all of that, all MacArthur, if you continue to listen to the clip, MacArthur then goes back and he quotes 1 Timothy 2, and he describes what God's design is for church leadership and for the place of teaching, and he explains what God's intentions were, and, and that creates the problem. Now, these teachers, these gals who should be, you know, who are able to teach and should be in these, uh, using their gifts to benefit the church, and you're stifling it, and you're, you're, getting rid of what God has given to the church, so people say. And so all this firestorm came against MacArthur for making that statement. And I thought, you know what, the only reason why this debate even exists is because people have already departed from the Scriptures. Um, just to remind you, uh, the First Timothy 2 passage that MacArthur ended up uh, quoting, First Timothy chapter 2, and this, uh, what is said there, First Timothy chapter 2 uh, and verse 11 says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now MacArthur taking this very principle and draws this out, Notice what, how Paul bases his principal argument here, not saying that this was Paul's own preference. He gives an explanation for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was 
not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman being deceived fell into transgression. He appeals back to creation history as the basis for his argument. So not to traditions, not to a misogynist generation, uh, a culture at that time, but to the basis of God's design. So I wanted to say then that when man begins to depart away from God and his design, when man moves away from God's instruction, he then wars against God and exalts himself over God. We circle back to Matthew chapter 22 and we ask the question, how should, how does man love God? Well, he loves God exactly how Christ taught it and exactly how Christ modeled it. He loves God with a wholehearted devotion to God and to others. And he loves God by placing himself under the will of God in submission to God. And that placing oneself under the will of God in submission to God means bringing our entire being, our entire convictions, our entire perspective under God. So that I can say this, one of the ways that I can see the demonstration of one's heart and devotion to God is how they treat his word. Do they come under it or do they stand over it? Are they like the religious leaders who stood over the word of God and when they stood over the word of God, they couldn't see the teaching that it was pointing to? Listen, these men stood over the word and they couldn't even see the Messiah standing right in front of their face. Even when kids were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, they couldn't see that this was the Messiah. And even when that Messiah was performing miracles in their sight, they couldn't see that this was the Son of God. And even when Christ himself was revealing himself before them, they couldn't see it. Why? Because they had been in a place for so long, exalting themselves over God, that they wouldn't see the truth. And Christ, in utter simplicity, exposes all of that by quoting the scriptures and modeling this demonstration and commitment to the scriptures. Two times here, again, the quoting, as I said, uh, when refuting the Sadducees on the resurrection, he quoted uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, and he implied, from an implied verb on the text, he draws out an implication that, it, that refutes uh, the Sadducees' whole arguments that they have ever made about the resurrection. And again, he uses the basis of the scriptures to expose them. And then the last thing that he's going to do in verses 41 through 46 is turn to the scriptures and sets up a premise. He says, who, does, who is the Messiah? And they say, he's the son of David. Then why does David say that uh, he call him Lord? He goes back and, and quotes Psalm 110 and verse 1 and quotes the Old Testament and says, okay, you solve this exegetical dilemma. If David's, if the Messiah is to come and he is the son of David, then how is it that the son of David then is called Lord by the king? And they were silenced. The only way to answer that question is that the son of David, the son to come, the Messiah to come, had to be preexistent and had to be greater. And the only way that he'd be greater is, was that he was preexistent, but also that he was God. Only answer. But as verse 46 says, 
No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They couldn't handle the scriptures. They wouldn't come under the scriptures. They traditionally exalted themselves over the scriptures. So when the scriptures were brought to bear, they were unable to refute. Friends, I believe for us, that this is the greatest demonstration of our love for God. How do you respond to the authority of his word? Do you like the religious leaders standing over it, telling it what, what it must mean? Or are you like Christ coming under, under it and dependent on it? That is what's laid out. Now, I know in your case that you come to a ministry like this because you want to hear the word and you want to come under it and you want to be informed by it. To understand this then, that is the godly heart that God honors. He honors the sensitive heart that, as the prophet Isaiah recorded, trembles at his word. He honors the heart of devotion and dedication to him. He honors the one who who sees the truth and, and works to come under it and understand it and apply it. He honors the one who not only, again, hears it, but then goes and works it out uh, in his life. And this is how we will be tested. I think about this just in light of the whole MacArthur circumstances and everything like that. It isn't the comment that MacArthur made that caused all the uproar. Why? Because far worse comments were made afterwards. If you listen to the whole clip, MacArthur retorts, go home, but Phil Johnson says she's a narcissist. Which one's worse? To say, go home or you're a narcissist? I think if someone called me a narcissist, that would be much worse than someone telling me to go home. And yet all the uproar is over a pastor who called called her out and said, go home. So then what's the problem? The problem is against a man who openly speaks the word of God and brings God's clarity. That's the problem. Man not wanting to come under the word. Now I recognize this. I you know, I have the privilege regularly of teaching in the pulpit, and I do get people who don't like to hear what I say. I'm used to it by now, it's been nine years. I also have kids, they don't like to hear what I say, so I'm used to people not wanting to hear what I say. But I know the congregation isn't always ready for that. And there's going to be a time where you are going to be called into account and your convictions are going to be tested and you're going to have to decide in your own heart and life, am I going to believe the word of God and trust it or am I going to trust in my own wisdom and my own understanding? You will be tested on this just as we are tested on it. I'm tested every time I come into the pulpit and handle the scriptures, but you too will be tested at some point. And we have a culture that is drifting away from the authority of the scriptures. So I can say this then, just to come full circle. Train yourselves now to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And remember Solomon's words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Is the model of Christ not to be our pattern? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the example of Christ set before us. We we are so thankful for 
um, those times in which we are overwhelmed, so that we can look to and fix our eyes upon Christ. And in fixing our eyes upon Christ, we find such clarity and, uh, and such an example that we can come under. We pray then that we would come to your word in the same way that he came to your word, that we would honor it and love it, that we would proclaim it, and that we would not rest in our own wisdom, but we would rest in the clarity and simplicity of your truth, that we would work to get out of the way so that we're not the ones under judgment, but it is your word that is able to stand. It is your truth that is able to defend us and protect us. Indeed, it is your word that is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path that guides us and directs us into all things. And so we pray then, cultivate within us such a love and appreciation for you that we want to know your perspective on all things. That we want to know your ways above all else, that we would love to follow in your ways, to be like you in all things. So make us like you, not only in our thoughts as we're meditating on the truth, but in our practices as we're aligning our wills and actions with your commands so that we would have peace and rest, so that the turmoil within our own souls would be put to rest because we have found favor with God. Thank you that when we do transgress, that we can turn to Christ, that we can cast our burdens upon him and find favor, that you are merciful and pour out your mercy abundantly. And we pray, Father, that if there is any stubborn or self-willed, that you would use even a message like this to expose within them their own uh, stubbornness and self-will, so that they, they would quickly bow and depend upon you. And we do know that all those who turn to you, you don't cast out. So, Father, may your people find comfort in regularly casting their burdens upon you and find great joy in being reconciled to you, that above all else they would desire peace with you. Thank you that you are one who opens your arms and willingly receives those who come. We pray then, again, make us a people who proclaim your word and live it out in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.